You are listening to the Passion City Church podcast. To learn more about Passion City Church, including our gathering times in Atlanta and Washington, D.C., visit us online at passioncitychurch.com. Today's talk comes from Brad Jones. Amen. I don't know if you're a reader, but in the last few years, a bunch of leadership books have come out, but one of the best-selling books is called One Thing. It's by Gary Keller. Has anybody read that book? Okay, not a best-selling book for Passion City Church. Do we have anybody that reads at Passion City Church? Okay, just only reading Rest in War and don't give the enemy a seat at your table. All right, perfect. But One Thing, and it's been at the top of Wall Street Journal, New York Times bestseller, very well-known book, apparently not to us, but it centers around just the thought, what's not the, the one thing you know, but what's the focusing question, the most important question that you would ask? And if you get that answer, the one thing that you would focus on, not all of the things, not many things, but what's the one thing that you need to focus on to achieve the best results in your life? Instead of being the golden corral of options and you gotta focus on all these different things, it's like, what's the one thing? So I'm gonna bring a talk today uh, called The One Thing God Wants. That's the question. It's a pretty good question. Amen? The one, but, that, but that's not the question you, you and I normally ask of God, is it? I, I don't know about you, but I know for me, I usually ask God a lot of questions and they're all about what I want. God, um, would you bless me? Some of you maybe have a theology or more of a view of God that he's the great genie in the sky where you get a few wishes. If you're good, you get more. And if you're really great, you go to church a lot and you read your Bible, you get a lot of wishes. God, would you bless me? Would you help me? And, and by no means am I saying it's wrong to, ask, he loves when his children come near and ask their heavenly father for his good gifts in their life. But how often do you and I come and ask the most important question? God, what is, what is it that you want? What would you have for my life? I believe if we ask that focusing question, then everything else will fall into place in our life. What's the one thing God wants? We're gonna look at Mark chapter 10. If you got your scripture, let's go there. We're gonna uh, talk about a story called the, of the man that we call the rich young ruler. Anybody like this story? It's tough for me. It's been, I've actually gotten the chance to uh, dig into it multiple times. I've had several messages that have come through this. I always keep be, getting drawn back to it. The first time I ever preached on it was uh, last year. I got invited to speak at a church in Auburn. War Eagle, anybody? Uh, go Dogs. I said War Eagle, but you said Go Dogs. Turns out y'all won the national championship recently. We had a hard time remembering if that happened or not, but every dog I meet still talks about it. Anyway, moving on. But I got asked to preach at this church, amazing church. They're in the book of Mark. And the pastor, I'm so grateful. He's like, just preach anything you want out of the book of Mark. I'm like, awesome. I'm gonna preach on the feeding of the 5,000. I love that story. He's like, ah, actually I'm preaching that the, that the week after you. I'm like, well, I thought you said whatever I wanted. Okay, then I text him back. I'm gonna preach on Jesus walking on water. He's like, oh, I'm preaching that this week. And I'm like, well, why don't you just tell me what you want me to preach on? He said, will you preach on the rich young ruler? And I'm like, no, because I have always wrestled with some tension in that story. And if you know the story, 
you'll know what I'm talking about, but we'll get there in a moment. It starts in verse 17 of Mark chapter 10. We'll read the whole thing, then we'll come back to it. It's a bunch of phrases in here that we could chew apart. But as Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him, fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good, Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony, you shall not defraud, honor your father and mother. Teacher, he declared, all these I have kept since I was a boy, proud. He puts his shoulders up, man, I've got this. Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said, go sell everything you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. At this, the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. The rich young ruler. I don't know if he was single, but I would submit to you if he was, he would be a very eligible bachelor. And people in here would be, single ladies would be willing to go on at least one date with them. Can I get an amen? You're like, how, how do you know? I'm like, well, he's rich. He's young and he's a ruler. Ladies, anybody like one date? No, no. You're like, as long as his heart's good, as long as he loves Jesus, then I'll be interested. No, amen. <laughs> but it helps that he's rich. But in different accounts of the gospel, we learn about this man. And when it says he's a ruler, What's important for you to know is it wasn't just like a king or a prince, but he was more likely a leader in the synagogue. So not only did he have a lot of stuff and he had a lot of notoriety, but he was a good man. He, his character was impeccable. He was a role model. He wasn't a priest, but he was a lay leader that people pointed to and said, that's how you should live your life. So he wasn't using his wealth and squandering it on all the wrong stuff. He was actually living an exemplary life. And this man, though, is not at peace in his soul. And he meets Jesus. He has the chance, this chance to cross paths with him. And he asks a question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Because this man had been raised on religion, right? Which is all about what we must do to earn God's favor. But the gospel isn't about done, do, it's about done, right? And he was thinking he had to earn God's love. Meanwhile, Jesus was doing what he could do to show God's love. Because it's not about do, but it's about done. He said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, you know the commandments of all people. You're a leader in the synagogue. You should know, like, there's a list. There's some rules. And maybe if you're following those, shouldn't that be good enough? And the guy's like, yeah, I, I know the commandments. I, I've done a pretty good job. He's like, you should check out my resume. Anybody like to lead with their resume between you and God? You're like, hey, check. The, well, first of all, did anybody ever exaggerate their resume? Is that Anybody? Crowder, do you have a resume? <laughs> have you ever put together a resume? No, okay, that is an amazing thought to think about. But like in high school, when you're like trying to get into college, any, yeah, anybody like basically make up organizations that you're a part of? No? Yes, anybody, the key club was the popular one when I was 
in high school. I was like, what do they do? Do they, I mean, if you're in the key club or you lead the key club, I'm sorry. Mike, y'all just count keys? I, I, but but we, we feel like we need to like amp up our resume. God, if you're there and if you're good, then my goal is to be better than most so you will bless me and give me what I want. And this guy, he had a good resume. And he was actually able to say, I've been working hard. I've been trying my best to not mess up the commandments. He had an inaccurate view of what the commandments were all about. We might get to that in a little bit. He said, I've kept them all. I've done my very best. And some of you have been living that way in your relationship with God. It's just all about you trying to earn and strive for God's blessing and favor. But then Jesus, it said, he looked, verse 21, He looked at him and he loved him. I don't want you to miss that because we're about to get to the tension of why this passage of scripture gets tough. And Jesus is gonna tell the man some very challenging instruction. But he did it because he knew him and he loved him. This, was not a, this man was not a stranger to Jesus. When Jesus met him, he knew the desires of his heart. He knew what was going on in his mind just because Jesus wasn't just a good teacher. He was God in the flesh and he was able to read this man and know this man and understand this man in the same way he, he knows you. He sees you. He knows what you're struggling with. He knows what you're walking through. He knows what you're hoping for. He knows the mistakes you've made. He knows what you're living for. He knows how much you love him or don't love him. You're not fooling him. He sees you and he loves you. He loves you. God's not trying to punish you. He's trying to give the very best for you. He says, Jesus looked at him and he loved him. He said, one thing, there's the phrase, one thing you lack Go sell everything you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. Does that make anybody uncomfortable? Is there any tension? Did God tell you any of that? Because what he told me was if, like, I, I love the verse, if you believe in your heart, and you confess with your mouth that Jesus is the son of God, then you'll be saved. You'll be a child of God. Why do I get the easy, I just have to say a prayer and announce my faith in Jesus. This man has to go sell everything. There's tension, right? Now now are we like having to earn God's favor? Are we having to do something? Is this a works-based salvation? Is there some tension here? And would you and I be willing to give everything to follow Jesus. Not just like, hey, I'm willing. No, you actually have to go give it all up. Why did Jesus tell him this? Well, there's a few points I wanna bring from today's message. And the first one is that God desires and God deserves your worship. What he's trying to let this man know is that God, yes, was grateful for the behavior Yes, was grateful for a life that wanted to honor him, but he didn't need his stuff. He wanted his worship. And you know that because when Jesus starts quoting the 10 commandments, he lists the last six. 
Honor your father and mother. Do not commit adultery. Don't covet. And those, those commandments, they're horizontal commandments, are relationships with the world and the people around us. The bottom six. This man would have known the law backwards and forwards. He was a teacher of the law. He should have known when Jesus said, you know the commandments. He should have said, why did you leave out the, last, or the first four? He should have been on to something. The first four commandments which is you shall have no other God before me, that you shall not make any idols and worship them. You shall not take God's name in vain. You should remember the Sabbath, the Lord's day, keep it holy. The first four, vertical, and all about our relationship with God, all about who or what we're worshiping. God's saying, what I want the most, yes, the behavior is nice, but it must flow from a heart of worship. I desire and I deserve your worship. What's Jesus doing? He's, go, go sell everything. Go sell everything. He's just nudging and pointing and, hey, check out the idol of your life called your stuff. Because what I want is not just to say, hey, you're good, man. You're good. You're going to heaven. Isn't, isn't that sometimes how we feel? Like this man probably just wanted Jesus to say, um, yeah, you're, you're doing a good job. You can be sure that you're going to heaven when you die. Just go and do your own thing and don't have to lose sleep. You don't have to worry. No, Jesus wanted more. He wanted his worship. He wanted to be the very thing. He deserved to be the very thing that this man's life revolved around, not just a part of his life, but all of his life. It says in uh, John chapter four, you know the story of the woman at the well? And they start with having a pretty interesting conversation about uh, if you could have some water. And it's like, well, if you knew who was talking to you, you'd get living water. And the lady's like, what is happening? And then he starts talking about how many husbands she's had and who she's living with. And then the third thing, he starts saying this, she, she distracts and she goes, let's talk about worship styles. Where do you worship? How do you worship? Do you like the music loud? Do you like the music soft? Do you do it on that mountain? Do you sing these songs or not? And he goes, I, he said, there's a certain type of worshiper the Father is looking for. What does God want? What's the one thing? He wants worshipers. Are you a worshiper? He said, he, the Father's seeking worshipers that worship in both, not about a place, but about a person who but we worship in spirit and in truth. What's the one thing God desires? Your worship. It's what the talk was all about the last few weeks. Romans 12, one, in view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. This is your spiritual act of worship. He wants not just some of you, not just a part of you. He wants all of you. It says in 2 Chronicles 16 that, that God's eyes are searching to and fro is maybe the old, you know, the King James version. The new one is he's, searching and ranging throughout the earth. And what's he looking for? He's looking to strengthen those whose hearts are fully his. You need some strength? God's looking to strengthen those whose hearts are fully his. He deserves that worship, Revelation 4, 8 through 11. We don't have time to get into it, but there is no one and nothing that is worthy of your life orbiting around other than God and his son, Jesus. What does God want? He wants to be the center by which everything flows. And so it makes me ask the question, makes you ask the question, 
does God have my heart? Does, is he, back to even the beginning of the year, put God first? Is he the center place in all of the things I do? Because we wanna be better dads, we wanna be better leaders, we wanna be better people in the community. But if God has our heart, then that will flow to every area of our life and we will excel and live the life God wants us to live. God desires and deserves your worship. What's that also mean? So there's a, number two, there's an enemy that wants to rob from you what God deserves. You have an adversary. You have an opponent. He's not just trying to get you to drink a little bit more and sleep around a little bit more. He's trying to steal the worship that God deserves. It's his tactic. And he knows that you and I are at our core are worshipers. We are going to revolve around something. We are going to worship something. So his tactic is to get our eyes off the one true God that is worthy of our worship and have us settle for something less that is not worthy. He knows you're prone to miss the mark on what you're worshiping. It's like I played tennis in high school and um, I was a decent tennis player. I had a good serve, a great serve. Who am I kidding? It was amazing. Why are you laughing? I had a good serve. I had a pretty good back or forehand. I had a terrible backhand. Like it was very obvious that I did not know how to hit a backhand so much. So I made, I mainly played doubles and anytime the ball was coming towards my backhand, I would just jump to try to like get over on the right hand so I could hit my forehand side. And when it would come for the serve, I would be like against the fence. Like, Hey, you do not hit it over here. I'm going to hit my forehand. But if you were good, you would watch me in warmups and go, I'm about to annihilate this guy because he can't hit a back, backhand. I'm just gonna expose his weakness over and over again. So what's the enemy doing? He sees you and your tendency to worship something less. So he's just gonna be putting things in front of you that say, hey, live for this, orbit around this, make your life about this. It'll be like this man, right? who had so much stuff in and of itself, they, it wasn't bad to have wealth, but the wealth isn't a good God. It's not worth living for. So actually in the success, the devil was winning. He said, he was like, ah, and what's the devil do? He inflates. We're thinking a lot about inflation right now. That's the strategy of the enemy to try to make things that aren't worthy of your worship look like they're worth everything. It's a tactic. He's trying to expose you. But at some point when I was playing tennis, I realized that my opponent had some weaknesses. And so instead of just showing up to warmups, trying to hide my backhand, I tried to start figuring out where their weaknesses was. And there's an enemy, an adversary, but he's not perfect. He's not all powerful. He doesn't get all rule and authority given to him. No, he trembles at the name of Jesus. He doesn't tremble at my name. He trembles at Jesus's name. That's why some demons said, I know Paul, I know somebody else, but I know Jesus, I know Paul, but I don't know you. And they lost massively. But when we walk in the name, in the power of Jesus, the demons tremble. The sting of the devil is death and that's been removed so we can walk confidently in power knowing yes, there's an opponent, but he is nothing compared to the name and power of Jesus. Can I get an amen in this place? 
I want I want you to see it just really quickly. It, it blew my heart up this week. But in Matthew chapter three, um, chapter four, and, and Pastor Louis done such a great job teaching out of this passage over the years. But it's when Jesus is being tempted in the wilderness by the devil, and you see the devil's tactics. And the first two tests are: if you're the Son of God, prove it. Prove that you're who you say you are. Prove that you are who God says you are. But then you get to his ultimate agenda at the very end in verse eight. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. You and I, it doesn't all make sense, but we're in a cosmic battle between, and, and there's a contention for our worship. God deserves, he desires your worship. The devil's trying to rob him from it. Um, some of you have been robbed of some really special things in your life. Don't let the devil rob you of what's most special. That's a soul who belongs to God. So what do we do? Well, let me we get one quote in before we move on. Tozer, one of, my, one of my favorite authors says, nothing bothers the devil more than a Christian delighting in God's presence. So what do we do? We figure out how to delight in God's presence. Point number three, the one thing you need to do, can do, must do, seems like a bold statement, but I'm gonna go with it. The one thing you need to do is to cultivate a greater love for God. You, uh, any coffee drinkers in the house? Not, I mean, I'm not like talking like you drank one this morning, but like you got the pour over and you grinded the beans, you measured them out, like you ordered the beans from another, any of you people in the house that you, you know, raise your nose at the Keurig drinkers of, of, of us, you're one of those? Okay, great. We'll step our game up for Father's Day in two weeks. You will have like a pour over cup of coffee. But for me, Coffee, and I would imagine all of you, you could use other examples, is an acquired taste. I wanna give you some encouragement because I think as I'm giving this message today, some of you are like, Brad, I, I know I need to worship God. I just don't want to. I, I, I know that might be what he wants, but do I just force myself I'm not trying to belittle it, but, but our love for God, our worship of God is an acquired taste. And you should take comfort in that because if you're not where you're at now, just don't give up. The Psalm says, taste and see that the Lord is good. So over time, what you and I can do is put ourselves in position, not just to be told how our behavior needs to be, but where we could be cultivating a greater love for God. Because you will worship what you love. So the best thing that you can do, that's why God says this is the law to love God and to love people, is to cultivate a greater affection for Jesus. And you do that by being around Jesus. It's a great example in Luke chapter 10, a story many of us know where Mary and Martha, Jesus is at their house. 
You know this story? And um, well, let's just read it just to give you the full context. Luke chapter 10, verse 38. As Jesus and his disciples were on their way, he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. She had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he said, but Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. She came to him and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work all by myself? Tell her to help me. It's like a, Martha was like trying so much to just impress God by her activity. Martha, Martha. When it's mentioned twice like that, it's not a scolding, it's an affectionate call. Martha, Martha, the Lord answered. You are worried and upset about many things, but few things are needed. Or indeed, here it is, only one. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken away from her. Mary didn't have all the answers. Mary didn't have it all figured out. But what was she doing? She was sitting at Jesus's feet to listen, to commune, to, to hear, to receive. So the message to you today is not, you better start loving God. Get your act together, start loving God. Because it's not a switch you just flip on and off, right? Oh, uh, pastor told me, gotta love God today. No, but as we spend time with Jesus, as we sit at his feet, as we hear his words, as his Holy Spirit moves, you could be so far from God, you're like, I will never love God. Just ask Mary Magdalene if that's possible. But over time, as you put yourself in proximity to Jesus, you'll sense your heart opening up and you'll sense the experience with him is so rich and so life-giving and so transforming that you love him and you want to live for him. You want to follow him. You want to worship him. Are you and I cultivating a greater love for God? One more quote, Charles Spurgeon, one of Brooks' favorites. Our strength is found at the master's feet. You need strength? Anybody in here running on empty? Not sure if you're gonna make it through the week. Maybe it's a relationship that is breaking apart and you're not sure. Maybe it's a big life decision. Maybe it's an addiction, a challenge, a diagnosis. You're like, I just don't know if I can make it through. There's strength available. It's at the feet of Jesus. And again, he's searching to and fro to strengthen those whose hearts are his. Above all else, guard your heart for it's the wellspring of life. Got the chance, uh, Louis Shelley, Brittany, and, and myself, a few other people were at a wedding this last week, and a bunch of uh, former high school uh, students in our ministry were there. And I, I, I run into, me and Brittany led the student ministry for, feels like 20 years, but it was probably like five. Huh? Eight? You correcting me in front of everybody? Okay. Good, five and eight are very close. 
Who's grateful that Brittany Jones is hosting today? Man, come on. Everybody always tell her she married up, but I'm like, no, I married up. No, no one's ever told her that. We were out, we, in, in, in days and weeks, years, we run into former students and, you know, it, it's always either really exciting or heartbreaking when students that have come through our ministry are either following the Lord in love with him or as more of a, a fading lifestyle and a thing of the past. And uh, it's nothing you, a, a student pastor loves more than seeing like, I think it was John in the New Testament that says, nothing more that I wanna see than my children walking in the truth. But the reverse side, if they're not walking in the truth and if they've fallen out of love with Jesus, they're doing whatever they want, your just heart breaks. Cause you're like, you, just like this man that was maybe sad in the moment, they're gonna be sad at the end. They're gonna be sad at the end of life when they come to face to face with Jesus and go, I'm, I was living for all the wrong things. And, and for me, I just, we were at this wedding and these, we were hearing these speeches and uh, the, the girl that was getting married was in our student ministry and her and all of her friends, they just, they got up. And you know, the stats are all about when people go to college, when they all do their own thing and we've seen it over and over again, they just stop, fall out of love with the Lord. It's not as easy. The temptations come, the pressures come, success comes, disappointment comes. All these things are aimed by the devil to choke out our love for Jesus. But man, he had these young men and women stepping up, seniors in college, just graduated the last couple of years and they're just speaking of a, a not a behavior plan, but a, a love for Jesus. A, a, they, they met Jesus and they continued to follow him. And that's what the rich young ruler missed out on. We'll close with this. Go back to the very first phrase. Because Jesus was, he was going one way. The rich young ruler came and found him. They had a moment. Jesus made an invitation, said, do you want to go uh, get rid of the stuff you were living for so you can live for me, follow me? The man went away sad but he had the greatest invitation because it was said Jesus was heading somewhere. It says in verse 17, as Jesus started on his way, what does that mean? He was going somewhere and he invited the young man to follow him. The young man didn't have all the answers, didn't know how it was all gonna play out, but he met the son of God, not just the good teacher, but God in the flesh. And he could have gone on the journey with them. And that journey was leading Jesus up to Jerusalem for the final time after 33 years, three years of public ministry, Jesus was on his way to the cross in the greatest act of love that the world has ever seen. The man missed out and he could have been on a journey and seen for himself the Son of God nailed to a cross, dying for his sins, dying for the sins of mankind because there was a law, there was a standard, there were even the 10 commandments and no one is measured up, no one is good, not even one. He would have seen for himself that the gospel is finished, the work is finished. Jesus has paid it all, so all to him we owe.
I just ask, are you on a journey with Jesus? Are you, not, are you going through the motions? Are you actually following Jesus? Come and follow me. Learn to love me. Learn to know me. Learn to walk with me. Because as you do that and you're in relationship with Jesus, he'll, begin, he'll continue to transform you and change you, Romans chapter eight, conform you into his own image by that proximity. And then my heart goes out to people in here today that you were on the journey. And at some point you, you stepped off the track or you, you were in love with Jesus, like the students I was talking about. There's been moments where you've been flying high. Oh my goodness, Jesus is amazing. I love him so much. I'll go anywhere, I'll do anything. God, you're everything. And then that, that love has been choked out. Maybe things didn't go your way. Maybe God didn't act the way you thought he should in terms of doing for you what you asked for or hard times that you didn't think you deserved. But the whole time, God's been pursuing you. He's been wooing you. He's been inviting you. So isn't it, it's not just the fact that, oh, we gotta do our best, fall in line, follow Jesus. Jesus said, come with me. I'm good. Come with me. I'm God. Come with me. I'm worthy. Come with me and your life will not end in disappointment. It will end in you living for what matters most and what will last forever. Amen. Let's pray. Will you just take a moment? And just respond to God. Maybe it's acknowledging to God what is that idol that you revolve around? What's the thing that you not literally but figuratively bow down and worship? That is the center of your existence, the thing you care about the most. Just Confess it, which is agreeing with God, admitting to God what he already knows. And maybe it's just a moment for you to repent and say, God, I am sorry. I've been tricked into living for the wrong thing or the wrong person or living for me when you're the only one who's worthy. If you were encouraged by today's talk, be sure to rate us and hit subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, and wherever you stream your podcasts. To experience other talks, videos, and live gatherings, visit us online at passioncitychurch.com or download the Passion Movement app. And again, thanks for listening to the Passion City Church podcast.